welcome to another edition of the Unicorns Podcast. This is a podcast series featuring business leaders, motivators, innovators, and general go-getters. Carl Hartman is a very successful entrepreneur. He's also an investor, a mentor, an advisor, lecturer, and non-executive director. He's a man who wears many hats and is a true force of nature whenever he's near a microphone. And he's my special guest today on the Unicorns podcast. G'day, Carl. G'day, mate. Thanks for having me. It's always great having you on. You are the founder of many successful businesses, Compono and Lies, and let's not forget Tomando. How did this happen and how do you manage to balance your time? Yeah, well, I think the, the, the origin stories of both Compono and Liars are, are similar circumstances, but uh, but obviously different businesses in different markets. Um, firstly, on Compono, I think the, the real origin for that was uh, all the lessons learned from building up and scaling Tomando. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of formative experiences that you'll have in any foundation, um, an origin story. Um, with Compono, it was really around um, when we did Series A uh, back in the Tomando days, and you know naturally you'll be sort of asked to get more senior executives into the business. Um, and as a first-time founder, uh, um, mistake that a lot of people do, which is often you'll gravitate to people um, to hire that come from big companies that on paper look amazing, but you get them into the business, and quite often it's a square peg round hole. Mm. And if you think of it in context, if you're a you know, a, a growing company, you're 50 people and uh, you need a lot of people that are doers versus delegators. Um, you know, often people that come from big companies execute in a different way where they have teams of people and they're very good at delegating. And um, often, you know, the personality needs to play a coach. And that was definitely something that um, I didn't get right. I and mean, it's one of those things where if you have a challenge, you go, oh, I wonder if I can learn from that mm. and um, do it better next time with a, a view of kind of avoiding mistakes, uh, right? And I think the second one was when I was um, based in um, San Francisco for a number of years and you have to go head to head for talent um, against people that literally have unlimited budget. And, you know, you, you think going to a market like that, uh, you know, you see shows on TV like HBO, Silicon Valley, and you're like, oh, I wonder I how that show. <laughs> it has a great show. And I, until I lived there, I, I never realized just how kind of true to life it is. And I remember interviewing this one person and um, I get asked this question, legit, this is a real story. Um, what's on the menu every day? Um, I'm like, yeah, we don't have um, catered food. And <laughs> this guy literally said, yeah, I really only want to work for a company that provides meals because I don't want to use my own money on food. And I'm like... Wow, the entitlement. Um, that's not, I've mentioned what that. What planet story. are you on? Yeah. Well, there's a, you know, the, when, you, when you've got a lot of big brands and big employers that set benchmarks, um, all of a sudden there's a, yeah. there's a standard set. So, you know, long story short, naturally it forces you a, a bit further down the talent pool. And um, <laughs> I um, ended up hiring some people that were very junior, but um, with a bit of mentoring, a bit of upskilling, um, you can turn them into superstars. And it was one of these things where I thought to myself where like you can do this. I mean, if you think about it, sometimes you hire someone that on paper looks wrong, but they end up being right. And like the earlier example I gave, someone that might look right can actually be terribly wrong. Mm. And particularly, I think this is a very topical time to talk about this because if we think of 
right now in Australia, we've got closed borders, unemployment's at record lows, and yet you have so many companies that are well-funded looking for staff, and they physically can't hire people. So all I can tell you right now is you're going to have to make a compromise. But mm. you know, how do you identify people um, with data to, and understand the things that aren't on a resume and not only say, well, hey, this person's great because ultimately you can teach someone new skills, you can give people new experiences. It's really hard to change someone's personality. So if you start to flip the model on its head, hire for personality, understand um, where their potential might be and being able to take them on a journey of lifelong learning, not only can you identify people that might be hidden talent, turn them into superstars, but they're very loyal, right? Because they aren't, <clears throat> they're very appreciative um, for the opportunity. Yeah, because you've uh, given to, them a go. Absolutely. Um, mm. And in a traditional sense, you know, <laughs> this is the way that, um, um, I guess, business was done for centuries and we kind of lost it. It's like, oh, I'm just going to hire the person from Google and we'll see how that works out. Um, but now, I mean, like, it, <clears throat> I think the whole post-COVID world has probably forced us to, to think a little bit differently. So <clears throat> I think a big part of where, uh, Compono's origins were and where we're evolving to as a business um, is certainly about how do we unlock this this potential of people um, with a real precise uh, ability to understand what makes up people people in terms of skills, qualifications, um, and um, how someone fits a culture in terms of personality and organizational fit. Hmm. But at the same time, being able to link it to learning um, and increasingly, I think that's becoming just such an important pillar um, for any organization. Um, now the liar story is is similar but different. Um, at, at, now I should say we always need like a, a new a new thing out there like a you know BC before coronavirus, but um, you know uh, <laughs> BC yep. yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> um, you know I've travelled a lot. Like I, I would have travelled uh, probably an average of one hundred and fifty days of of the year. My peak was two hundred and thirty. Really, that's a lot. That's a lot of travel. Yeah, I, I track it all on TripIt, so I've always had the stats. And um, you know, I, I guess in in the in the pre-Corona days, you, you know, you almost wear, like wear it like a badge of honor. Like oh, mm. I was a, a warrior. I did you know three hundred days of travel. But um, no, my my peak was two thirty, and um, my my least I ever travel was a hundred days. And all I can tell you is, when you spend that much time on a road on the road, um, and you're just trying to build a global business and a high-performing culture, and particularly doing business in places like Europe, where even if you don't haven't organised this, um, every meeting after four pm will move to a pub, and you'll be given a pint. And if you refuse said drink that is put in your hand, then you get asked what's wrong with you. And mm. and really, that was for me that was the origin story of lies. Where I remember thinking to myself, and this is going back a few years ago, like I just don't want to drink every day, and is so such a pressure of socialization that comes with being a you know a traveling executive and yeah. um you do yeah. client functions and, and the staff want to see you and it does wear you down doesn't it does it? wear you down yeah. and yeah. it's no good for your waistline either well no and in my case i mean i ended up um at the end of the tomando journey probably being the um the heaviest i've ever been the most yeah. unfit i've ever been mm. and it was literally because i was just traveling so much um and then I think um, came back to Australia um, and um, Mark, my co-founder, um, he'd probably come from a different angle in terms of really um, coming from a career in beverage, starting to see declining alcohol growth rates, um, starting to to see this um, better for you wave that had, had well and truly emerged. I mean, you know, first it was in um, plant-based dairy alternatives. So the rise of things like almond milk and uh, yes. and oat milk and so it's forth. Huge and, now. It's, it's, oh, it's, it's huge. It's part of everyday life 
Absolutely. And when it came out, everyone's like, yeah, it's a fad. And now you've got something that's like 15% of the category. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then we saw the same uh, wave emerge in meat and with the rise of plant-based um, proteins. Mm-hmm. And of course, in, in these two category examples, you've got you know real successful businesses like Oatly and Beyond Meat. And you were starting to see the throes of this in beverage with, with two kind of um, big factors that were driving. First was millennials weren't coming into the category. So we all think back to when we were at university and, um, you know, for many of us, probably like classed as functioning alcoholics. Um, and then you, you look at a lot of these uni kids today and at least a quarter of them don't drink at all. Mm. Um, so you've got kind of a quarter that are not drinking at all. You've got a quarter that are serious drinkers that don't understand um, why non-alcoholic products even should exist in the first place. And then you've got this vast majority in the middle that are becoming mindful. And it could be that, um, you know, in my example, where I was traveling a lot, they just may not choose to want to actually drink every day. Uh, you might have others that the first to the bar and they might, you know, want to have a non-alcoholic nice drink before they, their um, other p- colleagues arrive. Or it might be, you know, this happens to me, um, you know, you're getting on, people are saying, let's do tequila shots. And um, if you can actually finish the night with some liars and end up hydrating and skipping the, the shots, um, it can be the difference of a hangover or not, right? Particularly if you've got young kids, which may be incompatible with being hangover in this day and age. Um, so naturally, I, I think there was this underlying uh, trend of giving people the freedom to choose. And mm-hmm. Ultimately, with um, with liars, we looked around, and the early entrants in the category were very much about doing new, novel flavors. But when we looked at all the data, what what the consumers were searching for, they were you know searching for things like, can I make a non-alcoholic espresso martini? Is it possible to have a non-alcoholic Negroni? You know, can I have a low-alcohol Aperol spritz? So what that was telling us, people kind of knew the flavors they knew and loved. Yeah. Um, they just wanted it in a, either a low or no format. So the central premise of Liars was to basically um, recreate all the major spirits in non-alcoholic format um, and basically empower people to you know choose to have their drink their way. And, you know, I guess the rest is history from there. It's, um, you know, we knew there was potential and pent up demand in this category, but, you know, two short years later, we're in 53 countries. It's uh, the most widely available Australian-made product pretty much ever. Um, we've achieved scale in two years. That was probably, um, you know, we, we look at some analogs in the beverage sector from Australia. Some others have taken 40 to 50 to do the same thing. And we've done it through a pandemic, which is like scaling on hard mode. Um, you know, it's very interesting to do some of these market expansion meetings via Zoom and normally you just jump on a plane. But mm. hey-ho, you know, you, you adapt, right? <laughs> but what do they taste like? Like I, I um, we, were, we were talking off air, I love a Negroni. I've never tried a non-alcoholic Negroni. Surely if the business is doing that well, they've, you've nailed the taste. They have to taste good. Oh yeah, well our our non alcoholic Negroni tastes like a Negroni, um, and um, send me an address. I'll, I'll send you, <laughs> send you a, a, a starter kit, a, you know, to help get you through lockdown. But um, but look, my personal favourite uh, answer to this question is uh, last year we entered one of our varietals, which is our Aperitif Rosso, which is a sweet vermouth, um, mm. in the uh, San Diego Spirits competition. That that year didn't have a non alcoholic category. And we actually won a double gold uh, against real booze. And the punchline for this um, competition was um, three of the judges are master level sommeliers, of which there are 300 in the world. So these are 
you know, yeah, yeah, the, they're the top of the pops. There's top that of the great, pops, the right? great um, documentary, SOM. I've seen it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was controversial at the time because they're like, hang on, this doesn't have any alcohol. But within the uh, the category rules, there didn't have to be a minimum um, ABV. So we got to keep our double gold and um, – you know, but obviously to the to the dismay of the real, uh, <laughs> you know, distillers. But but I think that's a, it's a good um, example to illustrate where sometimes if you can nail the liquid and the experts can't tell the difference, um, obviously that's the desired effect that we've tried to achieve. And look, I mean, there are some some subtle differences with non-alc spirits as, as um, traditional in the sense that you don't have ethanol, you're going to have a different molecular density, you're going to have a different palate weight. Um, so obviously, if you sip it neat, um, you'll be able to tell. Mm. But um, you know, follow the instructions, follow the recipe, be mindful of um, you know things like ice and dilution because you don't need to dilute it in the same way you do with ethanol yeah, to make okay. it drinkable. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if made correctly, it's um, it's it's up there. Fantastic. Um, and, and some some of the drinks, um, you know, arguably probably even taste better in non-alcoholic format, like a. Um, something like an Amarato Sour. I mean, personally, I prefer the non-out version. I think it's nicer. <laughs> <laughs> You're a convert. Um, mm. Now, tell me, th- this program is called The Unicorns. You've got two businesses there that are well and truly um, on the pathway to success. Um, could, could I say that down the, down the track, we are, we are looking at potential unicorns in both Compono and Liars? Oh, I know. Absolutely. I mean, both are centaurs. I mean, centaurs are, is the, the mark for 100 million plus. And I'd say in aggregate, we're, 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 we're throws off uh, being a unicorn. But I'm very confident that both businesses um, over the next sort of 12, you know, 18 months max will be in unicorn status. Uh, both have, you know, phenomenal trajectories and uh, are in um, markets with um, huge addressable markets and high growth. And in both cases, um, the growth of the business is outstripping the growth of the category. And I mean, that's generally a good economic indicator that um, you're onto something special. So running a business, Carl, is often about making really crucial judgment calls. Have there been any decisions uh, for Compono or Lies where you sit back and wonder whether um, what might have happened if you chose a different path? Yeah, look, um, I think probably the most up-to-date examples is uh you know through the pandemic i mean um liars is probably a little bit easier to illustrate because it was obviously we we went to market with a very traditional go-to-market strategy thinking about having distributors in each market um you know that they put us into on trade um which is the you know the bars and restaurants and then you know retail and then we support that um, with direct efforts in e-commerce but naturally when last year like Mm. simultaneously you had almost every bar and restaurant in the world shut um It was a, a systematic shock to the system that forced us to rethink everything. And we were very fortunate that we had uh, sort of a, a very strong e-com play in mind from day one. Were you um, up to scratch with respect to your e-commerce or did you have to do, <laughs> do We had to fast track a lot yeah. of things. Um, you know, we kind of had a, a more gradual round, um, rollout and um, we just had to put that into overdrive. Yeah. And um I think one of the things we did extremely well was just win the internet. We were just like, we paused all marketing that wasn't digital. And we actually probably for the first time had a completely captive digital audience. And in the same breath, all the people that we had employed to go out and um, go to bars and restaurants um, to, you know, I guess, spread the good word of liars. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were on the bench. So, you know, rather than sort of say, well, 
you know, twiddle your thumbs and, you know, stay happy. We were like, guess what? All of you are going to do Zoom masterclasses. And one of the things um, through lockdowns that we see is people are bored and they want new stuff to do. And for the first, you're taking all this traditional time that has been spent on commuting and traveling and, you know, um, and just spending time in an office. And now they're just trying to, one, stay sane, two, you know, hone different skills. Yeah. So there's... Um, at a macro level, there were these massive upsurges in um, both um, like cooking and drink making. And one of the things we absolutely nailed was like, hey, have you, if you've never made a cocktail before, even if you buy one bottle from us, we'll give you a Zoom masterclass. And what we'd uncovered was just this correlation between, because we've got such an extensive range. I mean, we have actually came out the gate with um, 13 variants. We've got our, our five RTDs and a bunch more on the um, of flavors on the way. Um, was they were like, oh, well, if I bought, bought this bottle, then I can make this. And then all of a sudden, you've got people that have never made a drink before making like a cocktail of the day. Mm. and um, But choosing to do it in a mindful way because they understand that in a pandemic is a health conscious, it's a health crisis and it's probably time to be conscious and mindful of, um, you know, the decisions you make. And that's been one of these macro trends that has absolutely thrived um, through COVID. And we were, I guess, quite fortunate that we were uh, well-resourced and could handle that. Um, I think um, on the Compono front to shift gears, um, you know, we, we, COVID probably affected us in a different way. It's just um, we've, again, very fortunate that um, the platform looks at the whole sort of hire to retire arc. And if hiring activity is low like it was last year, then the learning side is just explodes because everyone's just trying to keep the people they have. Um then sort of start of this year, there's a flurry of hiring activity again, but almost in a different um, sense because when JobKeeper was about last year, there was a lot of people um, on, on market. In fact, there's probably the most candidates in market ever before, but so little jobs. And now it's just flipped completely, um, you know, 360 where there's more jobs than people and people are struggling to find them. So so I think what we've just had to do is just read the room, um, understand where that wave is, and then just focus on that. And mm. um, to merge actually both together, um, one of the best things through with liars um, through um, through this has been, you know, having I guess a front row seat to the Compono stack. And um, you know, we've hired uh, forty people so far this year. We have another thirty open roles, and in most cases, we haven't met any of them. So we've been using both the um, the shortlist of product from Compono to identify people. In the past would probably be for, you know, a business like yours, unforgivable. But these days it's like, no, that's just the way of the world. That's how things are done. Yeah, totally. Um, but I mean, again, we've taken a data-driven view and it's, it's, it's funny. It's like all these learnings from my, my first startup is like, um, and then I'm using the technology from my second startup and applying it to my third startup. <laughs> but um, hey, I guess that's how we learn and grow. But it's been fascinating, like with some of these roles, because we are a global business operating in you know 53 countries at the time of speaking, and should be in 70 by the end of the year. We just said, you know what, we're just going to hire the the right person wherever they are. And um, from day one, have been building a virtual company, so we haven't had to change anything there. But I think actually bringing this um, this data driven view to say, oh, look at this person, um, you know. Not only do they have the domain expertise we're after, but they have the personality because we've been trying to build this um, high-performing culture um, in a, through a pandemic when we can't travel, we can't meet a lot of these people, and we're still trying to obviously create this glue. Um, so hence, the data-driven approach becomes really important. 
But then there's also the second layer, um, and this is something which, um, you know, again, using another one of the component products, um, which is Cluey, which is our, our learning platform. It's like, well, if we can then standardize the onboarding experience and bring in all this unique content about the product um, and then, you know, have all these virtual intros from the broader um, organization, well, then we're actually keeping a consistent um, experience and laying down those tracks, if you like, whilst also being mindful of, okay, for this person to be successful in a role, here's the things they're going to need to know about both our business and about, you know, um, how they go from where they are to where they want to be. So I guess that's been kind of rewarding to see mm. see it firsthand in some of the results um, and, um, and you know, just see how that translates to sort of this, uh, you know, execution and action. And I think, it, you know, without technology, being able to do this virtually would be very difficult, right? Because, you know, um, there's only so much you can pick up on a Zoom call. <laughs> so, so just on that, uh, I'm keen to know your thoughts on the future of work and the future of the office. Mm, because I would think question. gone are the days are, well, head office is pick a capital city, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, and our office hours are nine to five. You touched on it there. You've got a global business in Compono. And to my mind, it doesn't really matter where people are based so long as they're the best people for the business and they're getting the job done. So as we move through the pandemic, uh, where do you see this going in terms of um, the future of how people work and where they work? Yeah, so look, I think in all my companies, it's always been, I believe, in output, not hours. Um, and I, I think all that the pandemic has done is just probably just sped up some of these yeah. trends that have been kind of there for ages. I mean, there's been more and more push to flexible work, but I mean, this just ripped the Band-Aid off. Um, no, look, I, I think it comes down to two things. Um, if you hire well, um, you should create a culture of empowerment and trust with your people. Um, and I think whatever your cultural values are, that, that's an important one. Um, you know, call it whatever you want. It means different things to different businesses. But when people are empowered to do their job and they're trusted to do their job, um, their output is good. Um, and really when it comes to the future of work and the role of offices, I think in some cases, remote work is great because you can execute a lot more because you don't have a lot of um, things that suck time. But there's also some real challenges when it comes to um, collaborating. Yeah, um, agreed. You know, if I have to do annual pl like financial planning or um, go to market strategies or, or things that require multiple stakeholders, um, I mean, if you could, in an in a ideal world, just get everyone to a, into a room, draw on a whiteboard, it would be... 10 times more efficient than trying to do that on sessions on Zoom. Um, so I personally think that offices will become spaces of collaboration. Um, there'll be some workers where they go it to escape home um, in the sense of um, anyone that's had to probably homeschool kids uh, probably has a new appreciation for this, uh, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the, you know, the sanctuary of the office, right? So, yeah, it's um, like, yes, I am coming in today. <laughs> yeah, whereas if I look previously, I mean, I probably always worked from home a few days a week, even if I was next, like next door to the office, just because no one talks to me and I can get things done. So I've always probably used work from home as if I just need to smash out and catch up on emails and smash out a lot more of calls. Efficient. More efficient. But... Well, I, I was reading, I think it was the, the boss of Canva, Melanie Perkins, was saying today, 
eight times a year is probably how many times people will go into the office, to your exact point, to collaborate. Yeah, look, and she's probably not wrong in terms of if you think of, um, you know, quarterly planning reviews, Mm. um, you know, a couple of special events, uh, board meetings, things like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could probably distill it down to some discrete days. Um, I know with Liars being a really global business, I mean, I'm trying to think in terms of people and... 15 countries and growing um, in terms of boots on the ground. Um, but when we're hiring people, we're literally saying we're a global business. Um, you, know, we, you hear companies talking about remote work. It's like, okay, we have some like uh, calls that are just set in stone because um, we have to try to find time zones that work for three continents. And mm, yeah. it's really hard because you, you get some of these core collaboration hours where you might only get like maybe 10 slots a week, right? So um, kind of those are the ones that are locked in. Everything else is pretty fluid. So, you know, you need to k- pick your kids up and drop your kids off. I mean, you just do it. You don't ask. Um, you know, the, it's, the sun is shining and you'd rather play in the ocean in the afternoon and you can do the stuff uh, in the evening instead. I mean, go for it. Um, yep. And I think the thing is mental health. I mean, this is something on a personal note that, um, you know, being a post-exit founder, um, I'm very mindful of my work-life balance and also the time to myself. So, um, you know, I'm an avid kite surfer. If the wind conditions are good and that's the only afternoon that week, I will prioritize <laughs> that because it's important to me. And like, I can literally take my, yeah. my stress level from 10 to one in a good mm-hmm. afternoon. And generally speaking, um, you know, a lot of the stuff I have to do is just executing things. So I can probably pick that up in the evening in nine times out of 10. So I think it's, um, you know, back to the future of work. So I think you've got to respect other people's times because, yep. you know, we are all the center of our universes. But, um, um, you know, when you've got something that you've got half the company on, um, you know, as, as although you might prefer to do something else, flicking that becomes difficult. But I think outside of those core collaboration events, um, I think time is going to become uh, a lot more fluid. And then hopefully that translates into happier workers because they have more work-life balance, right? Because mm. that's yes. kind of where we've been building to over the last decade. But again, to bring it full circle, the one thing you must be able to hire is people that can work in that environment. And you know, certainly from a Compono perspective, a lot of our newbound inquiries is people just trying to understand, do I have a team that can thrive in a remote work world? Because mm. it's not for I... everyone, is it? It's not. It's not like if if you're a, a like an achievement orientated person who's a self starter um, with high levels of motivation, you will thrive. Um, there are some people and some cultures around the world that need they need that structure, they need that constant um, direction, and it happens organically in an office because people are next to each other. And it's like, oh, have you done X? Have you done Y? And it kind of creates this cluster effect. Um, you can recreate that um, virtually, and there's a lot of great tools out there. Everything from, you know, Slack up to different workflow management things like, mm. uh, you know, Monday and Asana. So there's a lot of tools that can help, um, but it d- doesn't mean that um, the people are going to thrive in that environment. So, look, I do think that there are some people that may put their hands up and say, "I just will be more successful in an office," and then it just has to come full circle about. Um, different businesses with different cultures and what's going to be ideal for them. Because mm. there are some businesses that will never be as efficient in a, in a distributed virtual environment where there's others that, you know, are just made for it. It's in their DNA. Um, 
and it ultimately depends what you're doing. I mean, to use the Canva example, like you gave before, in a lot of cases, these tech roles, um, you know, that they've got their marching orders, they're getting Jira tickets and they're smashing them out, right? So um, they just, you know, just execute. But um, if the role requires lots of thinking, so like strategy, finance, um, a lot of these things do require a lot of stakeholders. Um, you, know, you can't beat all getting in a room wherever possible. So just put your Compono hat on just uh, very quickly. You've been talking about hiring. Is it possible, Carl, to use technology to make the perfect hire? And when I say that, you remove the bias. You're not essentially looking at names, gender, um, whatever it might be. You're, You're using artificial intelligence, machine learning to remove all of that and get the right people in. I mean, is is that an impossible task you're trying to um, take on or is, is it actually possible? Well, I think starting with the first part of your question is the word perfect hire. I don't think there's anything as such as perfect. Um, you know, there's, um, we design, you know, the theme of your podcast, it's like we design these people and these JD sometimes and we are asking for unicorns, we're asking for people that may not exist. There's always a compromise. But I think, what technology can give you is a data-driven view and an insight into things that you may not have considered, which gives you a far better result because you're getting a more measured um, uh, outcome. And you know, ultimately, being able to think about um, some of these factors that aren't on the resume, you know, where this person might be in three to five years' time, and if, if, if given the right opportunity, learning pathway and environment. Um, you know, I like to say that the system is smart, not psychic. So, you know, you might end up, um, you know, having 100 applicants, you might get down to 10, and there might be someone who's not the top one, it actually might be someone who's the third or fourth, but with a little bit of development, they might become perfect. Mm. And, you know, to, to use this, I mean, um, we've had some some roles we've hired um, for liars, um, where we've seen them um, in shortlister and said, oh, Look, this person may not have the global experience, but you know what? With all the people we have in the team, um, that this person's so intelligent, they'll learn from that. And in six months, you know, that person's upskilled. So um, if you hire for culture first, you make sure that there's the raw skill set. And then if the domain expertise can be, um, you know, augmented from their just being in the business, I mean, that can be a, a really simple, um, you know, way to, uh, to hire because you're starting to get just far better outcomes. And at the same time, you're getting much more uh, loyalty out of people because they're, they're given an opportunity and they're given the ability to thrive, right? Because mm, when right. people are challenged and they're constantly learning, um, you know, it's, it's such a two-way street. So it's about what sort of opportunities can the company give for someone and at the same time, um, you know, how can they contribute? And I think that last point is so critical in all businesses because if you can have a really, really well-defined vision and mission, and no matter whether whether they're an SVP level or the the most, they're your intern, if they know how their day-to-day activities contribute to achieving that vision, and you can hire and create these instances where people are basically so aligned to purpose and values. Um, that is that is the the, the the super glue in this new world, right? Because no yep. matter where they yep. are in the world, if they mm. pick up and go, so I'll, I'll give you the, the liars example, just so because it's it's easy for listeners to understand. I mean, our vision is to change how the world drinks, and it's our mission to put a, a bottle of liars behind every bar in the world. And we've got a little asterisk now um, in the post-COVID world, so 
who don't actually delineate whether that's, whether that's a home <laughs> yeah, bar yeah, nice, or a, nice. a real bar because yeah. uh, we think the home the home bar through post-COVID has just exploded, right? <laughs> it's just, um, it is. But it's interesting. So, Although that sounds like really high level, um, if we look at our e-com team, they've got a revenue target, they know, um, but someone who's in the marketing team within e-commerce knows, well, if I can achieve these metrics, we achieve these these outcomes. Um, it might be um, someone who's an intern, they're working on some data stuff and they're like, cool, well, if I can you know, create this, well, then we can understand our customers better and these are the outcomes. To the brand ambassador who is um, you know, uh, signing up bars in Eastern Europe saying, well, you know, if I can get these venues across the line and they get it on the menu, then you know, X people per year. And then, if, so there's just, no matter what you're doing, everyone is just focused. So they wake up and they know what to do. And ultimately, I mean, that is one of my favorite definitions of culture, which is, you know, people know what to do with the absence of, um, you know, being told what to do, right? So it's just this, um, this living, breathing thing that um, um, ultimately instructs people to do when the bosses aren't around. Um, and but it is as simple as just making sure that is uh, uh, linked back to a really clear, defined um, mission and vision. Carl Hartman, it is great as always to catch up with you, and we will uh, track your journey to uh, unicorn status with much interest in the years ahead. Thanks for coming onto the program, and we wish you all the very best in the future. Thank you. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Cheers. Mm-hmm.